You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. We are on Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio. I'm Professor David Kirk Philp, along with no, not Dr. Esteban Marconi. He's on assignment today. Today, we are doing a very special event, which is hosted by Mio, the music and entertainment organization which is the music business group run by students out here at the University of William Patterson. Today, my co-host will be Ale, Alexandra Chernuki lavarato Hello, Ale. How are you today? Hello. I'm fantastic. How are you? I've never been better, really. I'm, I'm, I've peaked right now. Every moment after the rest of my life will not be as good as this peak, which I've peaked and it, I'm all the way on the way down. So it's kind of a bummer for me, but not for our guest, Devin Landau who is a partner at TBA Agency. We'll learn all about TBA Agency, what they do. And uh, Ale, actually, I think, why don't you start with that? And then um, I'll add my two cents later on. So Ale, go. Hello. It is an absolute pleasure that you are here today. And Thank I you for having me. Everyone, of course. Um, I can speak for everyone because they wouldn't be here if they didn't want to. <laughs> so um, can you just start with like an overview of your career for us? Sure. Um, yeah, I have kind of taken an unconventional path uh, in my career that has now ended. Um, well, my career hasn't ended, but um, where I ended up being an agent which um, for those of you who might not know, I'm responsible. My, my job is, is solely to organize, book, negotiate, uh, and handle the live touring of uh, our clients. So um, I started in the music industry as uh, an amateur performer, uh, played in bands through high school and in college. And then in college, I started promoting shows because, um, well, where I went to school in Chicago at the University of Illinois, um, there was a lack of uh, the, the type of artists to see in Chicago that I was interested in. So I took it upon myself to, to book them and, and bring them uh, to Chicago. It was a lot of uh, dance music that was coming out of like the West Coast and, um, you know, basically learned the very difficult way that um, being an independent promoter, you put a lot on the line. Sometimes the show goes really well and then you get um, 
maybe a little bit more confident than you should. And then you tend to lose money on shows. So I'd never worked for the, um, I guess the entertainments committee at, at the college, there really wasn't one. Um, thankfully, you know, uh, Chicago has a very robust music community, so there was a lot of shows to go to, but um, I didn't have, you know, uh, the experience that a lot of um, maybe promoters that work for universities get where they have a set budget from the school and then they get to book things that are decided upon by the committee and so on and so forth. So I was doing this all on my own um, and then I was asked to perform in a, a band as the drummer, but they didn't have anyone to book the shows. So I was um, proposed with the idea that if I booked the shows and played, uh, performed the shows, then I would get half of the fee. So 50% commission, highest commission rate that I've ever seen in my career. Um, but yeah, so um, then I guess the, uh, the unconventional part of that is that uh, I didn't study music or music business or anything like that. I have a degree in archaeology, um, which is, I don't know anyone else in the music industry that does, but you know, that sent me off on a, on a journey to Latin America where uh, I fell in love with Latin culture and the music. And then, um, you know, fast forward, you know, deep into my career, I started signing a lot of artists in, in Latin America and uh, doing tours in Latin America and really took it upon myself to break artists from the US and the Europe um, in Latin America. And then that just kind of snowballed into working with Latin artists and, and exporting them to, uh, to other markets. So yeah, uh, don't use my degree other than the fact that, you know, I really try and take an approach to my A&R process and working with artists that um, actually have cultural relevancy and an everlasting um, impact on culture. And I guess the consistency between what I do now and archeology span is that, you know, an archeologist's purpose is to discover things and educate people uh, for many years beyond when, you know, the, you know, archeologists basically just dig up trash um, and uh, try and learn about it so other people can learn about it in the future. And I, you know, in a cheesy way, I think that I have applied that to the type of artists that I work with. So it's really important to me to not work with, you know, uh, things of the moment or flash in the pan sort of uh, artists. And yeah, that's something that I take a lot of pride in that, you know, I work with artists that mean something for the community at which they exist in. Very cool. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> um, I have a follow-up question to what you had said about archaeology. Um, so I was six uh, credits short of a minor in that. 
and I've taken a bunch of credits in that because I just love it. Um, so I'm curious why you chose that major when you were so involved in music outside of the classroom? Like, was there- Yeah, um, sure. So I had a pretty unique situation. Both of my parents before they retired were academics. So I was able to get a four-year tuition waiver. I'm sorry for those on the call here who are uh, gonna have debt, but um, I managed to avoid that. The one caveat of this, um, you know, I guess my parents started negotiating with a soon-to-be agent uh, before they knew he was going to be an agent, but um, they told me, hey, here's a four-year tuition waiver, but you have to go to school right out of high school. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to study. Music was always a passion. I didn't really know that there were jobs in the music industry that uh, would interest me. But when it came down to deciding a major, I very much um, had the clarity at that time that, you know, music for me was something sacred and I didn't want to um, perhaps, you know, tarnish the way that I looked at it by having to study it and and do all all of the the work around it I just wanted to go to shows and and enjoy it uh, and be be a part of it so to be honest I just chose something that I knew that reading about it and studying it and and writing research papers um, was just a, a topic that I would be interested in so you know I I grew up loving, um, you know, ancient Egyptian culture and, you know, the Aztec and the Maya and Inca and all that stuff. And um, that's how I ended up with focusing on uh, archaeology and art history, all focusing on, you know, what they call as the, the pre, um, pre-Columbian Mesoamerican era. So that's like anything that existed in the new world before the Spanish reached, uh, you know, North or South America, so. Very cool. I'm like, ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so moving away from archaeology just a tad, as I stopped, excuse me, internet researched mm -hmm. you, um, <laughs> I saw that you worked at a law office. Was it for entertainment or was it just like a little side? No, it was actually um, property. How do I describe this? It, I never even really knew what the, uh, I don't think I ever really understood what it was, even when I was working there. Um, it was a family friend who gave me a, a job in between my archaeological research projects. So it was a way for me to come home and pocket some money while I was living with my parents. Um, but yeah, it was definitely nothing sexy law related. It had to do with... Um, property or zoning and stuff like that so nothing that interesting and I think at that moment I was um in I pr previous to that I was interested in law and I still am but that job actually helped me realize that 
it wasn't going to be for me, at least in the short term. All right, cool. So let's go back to TVA. And um, can you tell us um, about how or why it began? Yeah, so, um, you know, this is one of those moments, uh, I like to say, from breakdowns come breakthroughs. Um, myself and, and the four other founding partners, we're all colleagues of each other from two previous agencies. We were all together at the Windish Agency. And then um, just like with a lot of the big corporate agencies, there were numerous, um, you know, buying up different uh, smaller independent companies that then made up this larger corporate agency landscape. So we were at the Windish Agency and then um, the Windish Agency was bought by Paradigm and uh, the pandemic hit. And, you know, as it goes with corporate companies, they start to look at numbers on a sheet of paper and their projections. And I think they realized that their projections were not going to meet their expenses and mass layoffs happened. Um, all of us were on contracts, but uh, they used the pandemic as a as an out as force majeure, uh, you know, as an act of God. So we were all, I think it was something like 300 uh, of us or something crazy like that. All, uh, you know, a week into the pandemic, and we just had to figure out what it was that we were going to do. Um, I guess, you know, two very interesting uh, elements of how this was able to happen and happen so quickly was typically an agent's contract at an agency, they intentionally make it so the, the start and end date for agents, numerous agents within the company don't end on the same date because they want to prevent giving agency opportunity to basically do what we did, which was to all leave at the same time and to take all of our clients and, and start a new company. Um, so we were given that opportunity. And, and the other uh, unique circumstance was that we had the time to build this company when the only thing that we were doing at that time was moving tours and, you know, trying to figure out what the pandemic meant and what it meant for the the touring industry. So, you know, we this happened on March 20th, and I would say probably two weeks later, uh, the partners were, were identified. Um, we started contacting all of our clients. I mean, we were contacting them when all of this went down, but started communicating that we had this intention of starting a new agency um, and then just put our heads down, did a round of fundraising, found uh, you know investors and, and all of that. And then um, very quickly we were building a company and we launched on September 1st of 2020. So it was very, very quick from um, 
you know, when all of us lost our jobs. And yeah, we were the first of numerous agencies that have popped out um, from basically the the corporate shakeup that happened as a result of the pandemic. And, you know, um, I think Polestar, when they did put out their cover story the day that we launched, you know, the, the tag was the deconsolidations uh, of the corporate agencies begin. And we were basically the, the start of that. So uh, it was a lot of work. We had the time to do it. And um, we definitely had the drive and the feeling of, yeah, we really don't want to go back to the corporate agency landscape. So we're going to do it ourselves. Wasserman subsequently bought Paradigm. That's correct. Anybody at Wasserman who ever reached out to any of you and said, hey, hey, guys, that's the old regime. We want some of you to come back. Was there any of that? Yes, that definitely happened. Um, it happened not long before we were planning to announce the company. And the terms just did not make sense for us. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they... Okay, reached out to their ex-paradigm people. And because uh, from their perspective, so people who are listening, the reason they would do that, for example, bands you have that are going to make money on the road, like the War on Drugs, for example, um, they don't want to lose bands like that, artists like that, who they were counting on when they purchased Paradigm. And now you guys, as a result of everything, took all these groups. How many total acts do you guys have on your roster? And how many, how and how many a TBA came from Paradigm? And where did you, which agencies did you guys come from? Yeah. So um, we launched the company with a, a, a bit over a hundred artists, and we're over two hundred clients at this point. When you're negotiating with any of your artists and even your your colleagues there, how hard a sell is it? Or is it all, explain the process of, uh, we just got canned, we just got let go, we were just whatever you want yeah. to call it. Um, we're starting this other thing, can I count on you to come with us? Because you guys don't have, explain also, you guys don't have contracts, so they can do whatever they want as artists. So That's correct. Get yeah, that. so um, the agent's uh, artist relationship is at will. So there, you know, as you said, there, there are no contracts, very different than say an artist uh, managerial relationship or, or uh, an artist in, in a record label. I think in that moment when we were having those conversations was the moment when we really realized where we stood with our clients because they could have started taking meetings with other agencies at, at that time, um, but you know, we retained something like 95% of our clients um, when we started the new company. And, and most of the, the ones that we did not retain, it ended up coming down to, you know, we did a lot of, uh, we had a lot of teams booking at Paradigm. So, uh, what was different at Paradigm compared to some of the other agencies is that they, you know, you'll have the responsible agent and then territorial bookers that will, you know, they'll parcel out different parts of, um, you know, the country or the world. And, but they're still just the sole RA for, for the artist. That was not the case at, at Paradigms. It, it was actually, 
you know, not uncommon for an artist to have, you know, two or three agents on the team. So um, some of the artists that we didn't retain, it was a situation where one of the agents was still there and, and one of us was cast off. And that was, you know, you had to make a really hard pitch on, you know, if whether or not they would come with us or, or stay. Um, to answer your question, how, how difficult was it to keep them? It wasn't that difficult because at the end of the day, I think the artists really know who's doing the work for them. And an email address is just an email address. And, um, you know, they had the confidence in us, in the work that we had done historically to know that we were going to build something great. And while we had to do fundraising and, and find uh, investors, this isn't a startup company. You know, it's it's a company comprised of you know, a combined something like 80 years of experience in the industry. So it was very much just, are you with us or are you not? And thankfully we had the support of our artists and we're very grateful for that. So what type of people or institutions invest in an agency, in a music agency, booking agency? Yeah. Um, I can't go into too much, too many details uh, on that, but um, we're very grateful of the fact that we didn't have to go out of the industry to seek investment. So um, that was a very strong testament to what we were trying to build because it was, you know, people that knew us and knew how the industry works and um, yeah, they could see what we were trying to build and that they wanted to be a part of it. Um, you know, that, I guess the, what would be the most logical, uh, non music industry sector that would have invested is probably like a tech company. And, um, thankfully we didn't have to, to take any of that because <laughs> why take money from someone who wants to have involvement in your company if they don't really know anything about it? Yeah. That's one thing I was saying. Because you are West Coast, I was thinking, I was wondering if any Silicon Valley tech companies were interested because they believed that they might have some technology that could be helpful to you at some point, but you just... Yeah, we, d we definitely had uh, some conversations like that, but um, it ended up not, not coming to pass, so... And it's also interesting because we joked right before we, we went on about how there's non-music industry money in the industry now, especially on the publishing side, uh, when we talk about, uh, I think it's KKR, Blackstone, uh, these huge investment companies that are pumping money in to purchase catalogs of music. Yeah. It, it appears they haven't, well, in a way they have, if you talk about like uh, what happened with uh, WME not too long ago and CAA had some outside investments, you know, in the 2000s, I guess, but um, that hasn't happened where you are. Yeah, it's um, it's a very interesting uh, time, and it was an interesting time to try and go out there and uh, seed money. But to be able to, you know, rely on people who we have relationships with that believed in us was the way that it was all possible. So, yeah, it's 
it, it, it wouldn't have been possible that way because, <laughs> you know, it, uh, it took a lot to build the company and, you know, we've, all of our staff have been uh, on payroll since we launched the company. And um, as everyone here probably knows, the touring industry only really came back, you know, in the second half of 2021 for the most part, aside from, you know, branding deals and virtual um, performances and stuff like that, which, you know, for the duration of, you know, the second half of 2020 and the first half of 2021 was a drop in the bucket of what normal revenue for an agency would look like when you're solely relying on touring. So it definitely allowed us to weather the storm and, and have payroll and, and all of that stuff. Going to how you sign artists, like, is that you said that at Paradigm, you worked uh, sometimes as a group. Do you do that now? How's, how does that change with this new company? Yeah, definitely. Um, that is a model that we actually really liked um, at Paradigm. I think that the territorial booking system, while it, you know, I'm sure it works, otherwise it wouldn't be in place for other companies. I think that there's a, there's some nuance that's lost when, you know, you have one or two people at a company that basically represent the whole roster just in a certain geographical area. And I think when you actually know the artists that you're working with and what's important to them and, um, you know, what has gotten them to where they are in that moment, uh, you are able to make a stronger pitch to a festival or a promoter or whatever the, or a brand, whatever the, the case may be. So, you know, we, we actually really like the team model. It allows us to work with more artists and divide and conquer, uh, in different ways. And, um, you know, when you are working with people that you know very well and trust and that you share the same ethos and morals and all of that stuff, um, it just makes for a better team kind of effort. And I mean, that was a lot of the reason why we started this company with, you know, the people who are involved in it, because it after what we had experienced, it, it became very important that uh, we were entering into a new era of our careers um, and representing our, our clients with people that we really are, you know, linked in, link, armed, linked and going into battle with together every day. So it was very important that, you know, who, who we were in, involved with we're, we were all on the same page. Cool beans. Um, so <laughs> on LinkedIn, I saw that you speak Spanish and Portuguese. Is this correct? Yeah. So I studied French in high school and college, and uh, I learned more Spanish in four months than six years of uh, taking French in a classroom. Um, you know, I did a an archaeological project in Peru and just picked up Spanish that way. I've never taken a Spanish class, but um, 
pretty confident with my abilities there. And my wife is from Brazil. So um, that's how I, how I learned Portuguese. Very and I also work with a lot of artists and in, in that, you know, are Spanish speaking or are from Brazil and um, yeah, you know, it's, it's a really great asset to have when you're traveling in these places or meeting people and um, yeah, it's dealing with promoters and stuff like that. Cause so, you know, it's, if their English isn't good enough to actually negotiate a deal, then I'll step in and, and do it in Spanish or what have you. Yeah, that's really cool. I can attest because I speak Spanish. So, <laughs> um, so how important is it to you to have Latin artists? Because I know you were named in 2019 Billboard Latin Power Player. So how like important is it to you to um, include the Latin culture within your... Yeah, uh, it's incredibly important to me. And, you know, one of the things that I'm really proud of with the artists that I represent is not only do I work with artists that come from Latin America that are based there, but, um, you know, I really identified that there was um, a movement that was starting to happen in, in the United States that was coming out of, you know, the scene of artists who are the children of immigrants where they, they identify not only as, you know, th these, these are kids that um, maybe speak Spanish in their household because it's the native language of their parents, but, you know, study in, in English and they have this duality within their cultural identity and that there were a lot of um, artists that were starting to embrace that and that they were not being represented. And, um, you know, I, I started just really trying to seek out those artists because I think, you know, in there are, there's a Latin community in every city in the country now, and the population is just increasing. And um, I thought that it was really important at the time to, be able to give them a voice and you know you have artists like Kuko or or whomever who you know it was the first time that you know these kids had someone to look up to and to see on stage when you know that was just not something that was very common and at the same time you know I was I had been working with Latin artists years before Despacito and um, I think the whole industry is kind of like hopped on to the trend, but um, yeah, getting in there early was, I guess, the, the foresight that you really need to be successful in this industry. That's incredible. <laughs> um, so uh, speaking of Kuko, I had a friend like a couple of years ago, was like, oh, look at this artist. He's really cool. And I was like, oh, yeah. And then now I see him in the Coachella billboard. So can you talk a little bit about developing uh, the journey, the development journey that went into building his career and ending up at Coachella? Yeah, it's actually the second time that he's performing Coachella, which is which is very exciting. Um, it is. There's certainly uh, a lot of politics that go into it. So, you know, he he started 
when we started working with him, he was just doing like backyard house parties in, in Los Angeles or even like in Hawthorne, which is the neighborhood of, of LA that he he's from. And, um, you know, there, it, we just started small, you know, we, it was very important, um, as it is with all of our artists to not skip steps. So, you know, we started doing very small ticketed shows. Um, the first tour that he did was basically just Southern California and, and Texas and then up to San Francisco. So, you know, we were very strategic in, um, you know, trying to put him in the best possible situation, just knowing where the pockets of um, his fans might be. And I think a lot of times you see really fast growth happen with an artist and you think, well, sure, he maybe did a 300 capacity show last time and let's do, you know, 2000 capacity or something because you, you, you think that it's going to do the business, but we really wanted to make sure that his fans had the opportunity to see him in an, in an intimate setting, um, that the tickets were priced, uh, appropriately for the age group. You know, he, he, always, he usually does all ages shows. So, you know, very early on, it was just this, uh, super in, uh, intentional, strategy of you know not skipping the steps that that happens very often and um you know thankfully we identified um partners within the golden voice system who really believed in what he was doing and you know we've just been uh you know loyal to that relationship and um you know Thankfully, especially in Los Angeles, you know, Golden Voice has venue sizes that, you know, are, can support this every step of the way uh, journey for an artist, especially a local one. And, you know, he's done everything from playing 500 cap rooms to 700 cap rooms, doing two nights at the 700 cap room to, you know, all the way up to the Shrine Amphitheater, which is 5,000 capacity. And um, yeah, I mean, he's doing three major Golden Voice properties in festival properties in, in LA uh, this year. So uh, it, it's very much, you know, it, it is a relationship business and the relationships that you nurture and, and support tend to, um, it's mutually beneficial in that way. You mentioned the term politics when it came to booking festivals how much can you go into that yeah well um i think it 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 to me it's obvious but it might not be obvious to everyone that i mean this is so much a relationship based business and you know a, a promoter that has smaller venues that can scale up in, in capacity tend to also have festival properties. So you kind of have to look at it as, well, what's the end goal here? And if the end goal is playing at Coachella, then 
if you're all of the steps that lead to that moment, if you're bouncing around from promoter to promoter, you don't really have one entity that is invested in the long-term growth of this artist, right? You know, you, you definitely can be um, distracted by other promoters offering more money, but you really have to think of like, what is the real goal? And a promoter that took a chance on an artist early on in the small room is probably going to want to keep working with the artist as they have more success. So for me, it's really important to respect the history that an artist has with a promoter. I really try to avoid, um, you know, changing promoters from tour to tour because then, you know, that desire for everyone to win is lost. Um, plus you lose the buyer data that way too. So, you know, it's very much a, like, are we going to do this together for the long term? And that's um, typically how these big moments like Coachella or, you know, Austin City Limits or whatever it may be come about because, you know, you're, you're working with them step-by-step step through the way. So if, if, if I'm either representing an artist or I'm an artist, you brought up some things um, and I'm fortunate enough and fortunate enough to have an agent or even, you know, two or three agents who are interested in representing me and getting work for me. Kind of checklist wise, what do you think some of the things that uh, are that an artist or artist in his team, his or her team should have on that checklist when it comes to choosing an agent? Like what would, if you were selling yourself to me, um, what would you, what are some of the things you would be saying? If I was pitching to sign your artist? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of a, uh, maybe I'll tell you the things that I look for in an artist, which I think also um, could be consistent with the things that you would want to hear if you were trying to decide which agent to go with. Right. So for me, I have to love the music first and foremost. So I probably would tell, you know, whatever the artist was that I was trying to sign that I'm actually a genuine fan of what they're doing and that I'm not just I just don't see the dollar signs in my eyes and that I'm trying to make a quick dollar. Um, it is a business, like let's not sugarcoat it. Um, it's, it's difficult to work with an artist that you really, really believe in that is taking up room on your plate if there's not really a business there. Um, the other thing that I would say is, you know, aside from being a genuine fan of the music, really having an understanding of what can work for the artist and what the strategy would be, you know, and I don't think that an artist wants to sit down with a, you know, a potential agent and be asked, well, what is it that you want to do per se? You know, I think um, an artist really wants to have someone who kind of already sees the road ahead of them for them and is like, all right, um, 
these are the things that you know I think you could improve upon. Uh, these are the things that I think I can help with. Um, you know, certain artists exist in certain spaces. So you know, if it's a you know a hip hop artist or or whatever, they probably want to hear that their potential agent is going to be able to get them on Rolling Loud or something like that. If it's a you know a mainstream like um, pop thing or something like that, or or a super cool um, band, they probably want to play Lollapalooza and Coachella. So being able to say to them, this is what I've done for my other clients that have done this festival, and this is how we did it, and this is what I'll do for you, um, or the the strategy that I would propose to, to get you there. Um, specifically with Latin artists, they don't just want to play Latin events. They don't want to just be another reggaeton name on a reggaeton lineup. They want to be the one reggaeton name on a general market festival and, or just, you know, a Latin artist is not even just the reggaeton genre, but I mean, that's something that I've had a lot of success with. Um, I have six artists doing Coachella this year and every single one of them have some element of Latin or Hispanic heritage to them, whether or not they perform in Spanish or they're children of immigrants or what have you. So um, a lot of it has to do with, you know, showing that you have experience in, in historical experience in achieving the things that, that the artist is going to want. Um, and yeah, <laughs> did, did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a big part of it. Okay, then the next question would be, because I'm just thinking about some things that some artists would say. One would say then, how do I know you don't have too many artists? Yeah, at what point, where's your, I guess, the plateau, the number of artists where you're comfortable, and then at some point, I have too much going on, uh, and I am passing it on. You're my RA, responsible agent, but you're passing yeah. it on to maybe others, and I don't hear from you. I don't see you. And does that person have the same experience? Yeah. How many is too many? Get into that. Um, it's a really bad time to ask that question because <laughs> the way that it, the way that things feel right now is, you know, the amount of work to, I guess, as we're coming out of the pandemic and you know, Omicron and all of these things. I mean, the tours that I have on the road right now were booked multiple, multiple times. The tours were moved. Um, and when we finally decided on, you know, February of 2022, it was at a time when we thought very foolishly that, you know, COVID would be gone by this point. So, you know, I have committed to this time frame and have tours on sale and now I'm spending, you know, a lot of my time renegotiating things with the promoters, implementing policies that are um, going to make the show more COVID safe, not only for the artist, but for the, for the audience. So right now I'm kind of taking a pause on signing new artists because there's a lot more energy and effort going into uh, just the booking process and, and seeing, seeing it all through than ever before. Um, 
I also think that, you know, it's a really interesting moment where you have all of these artists who were off the road for a year and a half or more. And certain artists really took advantage of that time to develop their project and work on new music. And some didn't. And um, a lot, I, I think the, the artists that, you know, are, are in a really advantageous moment are the ones that were really responsible with their time through the pandemic and are ready to get back to work and their fans are ready to buy tickets to their shows. So there isn't a hard and fast rule of like how many artists are too many, but you also have to prioritize the ones that are on the upswing and the ones that are having success. And then you start looking at, you know, how much do I believe in the artist? Is there a business there still? And am I better off? And are they better off if I'm just a fan and not, not the agent anymore, right? You're dropping artists is a really difficult thing to do, especially if you've worked together for a while. Also getting fired from an artist really sucks too, if you've done a really good job. And, you know, both of those things happen. Um, so, yeah, I definitely <laughs> tried to shy away from, you know, putting a, a number tag on the type, the amount of artists that I work with. I think at the same time, I work with a lot of international artists. So, you know, my domestic roster and my international roster, they take different am amounts of uh, bandwidth from me, right? So, you know, I have artists that live in the States that are really, really busy and they, they could tour every day if they or I wanted them to. Um, but then I also have artists that are, you know, based in Europe or in South America that maybe just come to the States twice a year or, you know, I represent them in other international territories and they're just not on cycle all at the same time. I think the, the crazy thing about coming out of COVID and I mean, we're not out of it, but coming out of like the, the lockdown is everyone is on cycle. So everyone wants to work. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot of time management and, and, you know, one thing that we are really priding ourselves at TBA is prioritizing projects and not prioritizing just like the top five or 10% of the roster when it comes to profile size. As a final follow-up to that, I think, um, I think there's sort of a moral to that story is that artists need to work hard. You know, yeah. um, they're going to just, uh, just like a fan may lose interest. The team will lose interest. So if you're an artist, you can't just say, ah, Devin's got it and just sit back. You know, you got yeah. your share too. So. I'm, I'm not a magician, you know, uh, I'm a catalyst, you know, if, if an artist doesn't want, like, I cannot be the one that wants it more than the artist. And the ones that really succeed are the ones that um, wake up every day thinking, how am I going to better my career? And how am I going to make my team's jobs easier? And 
the ones that don't have that figured out or the ones that make my job more difficult are likely to be the ones that aren't prioritized as much as others. Cool. Um, so we have a question in the chat real quick. Um, Veronica asks, um, are you booking a, are booking agents used for YouTube series such as NPR's Tiny Desk or KEXP? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, no, they are not actually. Um, typically that those sorts of opportunities will come through, well, NPR specifically, the tiny desk thing, that typically happens with either the PR agent or the label. So um, KEXP can be different, but yeah, that stuff is definitely more on the public relations side. Thank you for that. And as a final wrap up question, um, as our, sadly, our time comes to an end, <laughs> um, do you recommend, how, what do you, mm, excuse me, <laughs> how do you recommend getting uh, that first job in the live as a college student graduating maybe this May, like me? <laughs> <laughs> the most common path would be an internship because, yeah, it's, well, at a big major agency, you'd probably be working in the mailroom um, and like dropping off letters and, and things like that. I think that's kind of, um, I don't know, demeaning in a way, but the best way to do it to get in is to gain experience. Um, you know, one of the main things that we set out to do informing TBA was to really give opportunities to people um, within, you know, the college demographic and even more importantly, um, you know, uh, diversify the, the job pool because I think one of the biggest kind of like pitfalls or issues with the music industry is that a lot of the people that get that first shot are, you know, the, the children of someone who's important or, you know, um, have had doors open for them that it was just very easy for them. And that's just something that we said that we were not going to do. Um, so one of the first things that we did when we launched the company was to partner with Diversify the Stage and, you know, we've had um, numerous uh, cohorts from that company uh, join us as interns and have then ended up getting jobs out of it. Um, numerous, uh, numerous, well, we have hired three or four assistants that were interns. And I think that, yeah, if you are an intern and you prove yourself and you do a good job, then you should be offered a job. I'm very grateful for the fact that I didn't have to do any of that. So I, I tried to return that favor. And then as an agent, at some point you have to get a license. When do you do that? Uh, the agency would have the license. So it's not an individual, an agency has the license. Correct. Yep. Okay. That was really Some fun. people here, I'm sorry, say it again. That was a really fun process. 
for you guys to get that. Was that on a state level that you had to apply for? Did you have to pass a test or is it just uh, like getting a dog license and you had to fill out paperwork and give them money? Um, yeah, we had to do it across states, actually, because we have people in New York and in California. Okay. But- it was, uh, <laughs> if I remember correctly, we were very, very, very close on the timeline at which we got the license and when we announced the agency so we were definitely sweating that part that's that's great okay and question i have uh ale did you have one more question we have like three minutes left did you have one more question ale yeah so there are a lot of agencies that started during covid that don't actually have like a specific home base or an office is that the case with tba as well yeah um it is, and that's by design um, for a few reasons. We've we've started to move into spaces in LA and New York, but um, you know, especially in Los Angeles, it was not appropriate to have an office because you weren't even you can't legally require people to go to an office. So why spend the money on it if you can't be in there? And the other thing was that I think a lot of um, what played into what happened with our previous home had to do with, you know, overhead and, and stuff like that. And um, we were just really conscious about spending money um, responsibly and, and not taking on uh, large overhead expenses before we needed to. So, uh I'm very much looking forward to getting out of my house soon, um, but for the longevity of the company and uh, all of that, it it was a sacrifice worth, <laughs> worth taking to, to stay at home for two years. All right. Well, I think it is then time to wrap up. It was great to have you for this. Thank interview. you so much. This was fun. No, thank you. Okay. Alay, you did a great job. Can we clap? Devin, can we clap for Alay? Very, very, very nice. Very nice job. One question, one unasked question. Um, Landau, are any relation to John Landau? No, I get asked that all the time. Yeah, oh, okay. I bet people ask John Landau, Springsteen's uh, man. <laughs> um, any relation to Devin? I bet, I bet he drives him crazy. Yeah, well, if they don't, they will soon, right? There we go. That's awesome. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Devin. Appreciate it. Ale, thank you very much. Everybody else, thank you very much for being here and uh, also for our podcast and radio show listeners, Music Biz 101 and more. Thank you so much. At the end of every show, we do not say hello. Devin, do you know what we say at the end of every radio show? What's that? We say, and it's an Espanol term, we say, Adios! I didn't swear. I'm so proud of myself. I wish I didn't like John Mayer or pretend to care about what I say so much. Wish I never met your friends and heard from them. They said, don't mess this up. Wish I never told my mom that boy I saw in the east side of the city. How'd you make this so hard? A loaded gun. Take me out of my misery and curse your dark hair.
It's your turn. 